This is episode 476 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. As we see our culture fall apart right before our eyes, there are some questions each of us must ask ourselves. Namely, what is the condition of the church today? Is the bride of Christ pure, like our Lord commanded, or have we compromised and sold our birthright for a bowl of stew? The church, made up of true believers, is to be the assembly of those who are to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 5. But sadly, as we see the church compromise and the world's acceptance and approval of us loom large in the hearts of many, our influence wanes to the point of being a non-factor in our culture. I mean, how did that happen? We've allowed our focus to move from the Lord to ourselves as we judge truth by how it affects each of us. This, unfortunately, is the current condition of the church, and it really should not be of any surprise to us. After all, Jesus said it would be this way for those who live like we do in the Laodicean church age. So let's take a look at the current condition of the church and also learn as believers how to soar in times of great compromise as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Hey, there are two types of churches out there. There's the type of church, I think, that uh, is able to discern the signs of the times and tries to prepare their congregation for things that could be happening. And then there's a church out there that pretty much just rocks on like everything's the same. And the pastor in January plotted out his preaching schedule for the entire year and nothing's going to deviate for that. And we're just pretending like everything is... uh, is okay. One of the churches that has really been struggling a lot, of course, is John MacArthur's church, uh, Grace Community Church. And so I thought it would be kind of interesting to go back a couple months and just look at what he has been preaching to his people. Remember, they shut everything down. They had outdoor services. They would stream their services just like everybody else did because we weren't sure how bad this thing really was. And so you erred on the sake of um, safety. And then uh, when you realized it was more of a power grab or a con, or it was being, as John MacArthur says, we've been played, it was, it was distributed not equally. In other words, there, there's, in San Francisco, for example, the, in, the mayor has said that a church can meet for attendance, but do you know how many people can be at the church at one time? no matter how big it is, one. They're making an exception if you have children, minor children. You and your minor children can go to worship one person, yet uh, as many people as you can cram into a tattoo parlor or a hairdressing place, that's totally fine. I mean, it's crazy what's going on. And John MacArthur's been kind of at the, at the spear tip of this, being threatened with jail time and stuff of that nature. So as this thing began to unfold, I was wondering what kind of messages he was preaching. So I went back to May, and here's the title of the messages, and I've heard some of these, that he started preaching in May. 
You know, he was talking about the necessity of Christian fellowship, that a church is not a church that doesn't meet together. The idea of the name of the church, which is ecclesia, is the called out assembly. If an assembly doesn't assemble, then it's not an assembly. And so he preached on those messages. Then he talked about the fact that how great Christ is. And then June rolled around and he was addressing issues like the riots. Who's to blame for the riots? And how should we as Christians respond to the riots as they were increasingly getting worse and have since gotten even worse. And then his message was, in the face of turmoil and riots and societal breakdown, act like men. Be a man. Stand up. Be a spiritual leader. And then he preached three lessons on the return of Christ. Final justice, the return of Christ. You will not find your justice in this world. You will not be treated fairly as a believer. Don't expect the lost world to love you more than it loved Christ. So therefore, what we're looking for is this return of Christ that brought us through mid-July. Preach the message right after that about those people who are struggling with this and you're discouraged uh, how, how there's hope for discouraged saints and the fact that even if we're not hopeful, we must obey God and not obey man. You see the thread that's running through his messages as he's preparing his congregation for what is coming? August. Talked about death since we're so afraid of catching the coronavirus. Why does the world reject God's word? Uh, then he talks about who we are in Christ and how joyful we should be following what Jesus says to do as a slave, as a doulos, and not worrying about anything else. Last three weeks, John MacArthur's messages. I listened to this one at the beach. Betraying Christ, the tale of two disciples. And the two disciples he talked about, I forgot how incredible John MacArthur is, and I listened to this message. The two disciples, he talked about Peter and talked about Judas. He talked about both of them had the same opportunity. Both of them betrayed Christ. Both of them denied Christ. One repented, one did not. And the, the message was a call for those who have betrayed Christ to come back to Christ. He talks about the corruption of sin. And then he asked the question, are we truly a nation under God anymore? And afterwards did a question and answer period for about an hour where he basically talked about how we need to be a shining light in the dark culture. Last week, he preached a message on what a true church is all about. And I have no idea what he's going to be preaching today. But as you can see with guys like John MacArthur and many others, they're trying to prepare their congregation for times that are coming preparing your family for what we can expect, which is what I would like to do to encourage us and show us where we're going to be in prophetic history. And if you think you're going to get the answer to that today, you're not. That probably, we're just going to build a huge foundation, which by the way, if I can say this the right way, I don't want to get bogged down on this. And so I'm going to whip through some of this really quick because I want to spend a little more time in Matthew chapter 13 to understand where we are right now in prophetic history as the church. Because at this stage of the game, there's two entities out there God's concerned with, Israel and the church. And we're going to talk about the church first because that's who we are. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 16. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. If you truly are who you say you are, and if you truly are delivering us the word of God, show us a sign. 
And he answered and said to them, okay, let me give you a sign you all know since we're fishermen and we belong to this kind of society here. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Okay, we know how to see the signs in the sky. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. Verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. That's all he said. No sign shall be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He did not elaborate on that. He simply left and departed. Take that message, focus on that. That's the sign that's going to be given, the sign of Jonah. Now, he's talking to Jews. They knew exactly who Jonah was. They understood what happened to Jonah. This was not a new sign. This is not something he's conjuring up that they've never heard before, like some of his parables. The sign he was giving them was something they should already recognize. Oh, let's go back and read the book of Jonah. Let's go back and see what Jonah, what's going on in Jonah's life and try to make parallels here. He was, uh, he already, the sign was already given to them. He was saying that that's the sign for you to look at if you have eyes to see. The signs that Christ has given us are laid out for us. They're all there for us just picking up, again, if we have the sign, if we have the eyes to see. And it makes me think that, you know, maybe we're a lot like this group. Show us a sign. What does that mean? I mean, conjure up something. Walk on water. Call down fire from heaven. Do something new and exciting and and fresh and, and awe us with how great you are right now. No, the sign that I'm giving you has already been given. It's a sign of Jonah. You need to discern, you need to read, you need to understand. When it comes to end times events, there are several key events of the end times, and we all know that. And what we need to do is figure out where we are chronologically on this continuum as God begins laying out some things for us. So if I were to ask you, Hey, name some key events in the end times, and we just kind of shouted those out. Here's what you would probably say. All the rapture, well, that's that's an event in the end time. And of course, there's that tribulation period, and then the second coming of Christ. Those are the macro views that affect us. The rapture, that's next on the prophetic calendar. And after that, the tribulation period, and after that, the second coming of Christ. All right, well, let's, let's break that down a little bit. Can you think of any more? Well, well, yeah, there's this Antichrist guy that's going to, after the rapture or, or during the tribulation period or something, there's going to be this rise of the Antichrist, and I don't really know how that's going to work out. And then I remember reading somewhere about some war against Israel, and God intervenes in Ezekiel 37 and 38, where it takes like seven years to, to burn up all the weapons, and, and they had these guys that go out and mark the bones. And Do you remember all that kind of stuff? I don't even know where that fits in, but I know that's somehow in the future. And then I know that if we have a an antichrist, I do remember somewhere that there's supposed to be some temple that's been rebuilt, and, and that hasn't been rebuilt yet. Anything else? Oh, okay, well, let me... There's great deception that's going to take place. Jesus said the end times were marked by that, and he also said that the love of many will grow cold. My gosh, is that not what's happening today? 
There's this apostasy or this great falling away from the church of the believers, so everybody will start believing the Antichrist. And, and then there's this persecution of Christians. And, and then there's, I remember these four horsemen of the apocalypse somewhere in the early part of Revelation, because I saw some movie about that. And then there's, in Daniel, I remember something about an abomination of desolation, and, and I'm not really sure how that all fits in. So there's a bunch of stuff out there. I just don't know how to put it all together. And I just don't know how it all fits together. And I especially don't know where we are right now in the United States of America on this particular day. Where do we fit in? And if I did know where we fit in, then I, I wouldn't be afraid. I wouldn't be fearful. I know that God has this plan. I can see in the past what he's already done to bring us to this point. I can experience what he's doing right now good or bad, because when God brings judgment on a nation, even good people suffer. And then I understand what's going to happen in the future, and it just makes life much easier for me. Before we begin, the key word, the key word that you need to understand is a word called convergence. One of the key signs that we find written in here, it doesn't actually use the phrase, but you can see it happening, is the word convergence. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is one of those terrible words where it's defined in the English by the very word itself. It's like the word bad. Well, what is bad? Well, it's something that's bad. No, you can't define a word with a word. And so convergence, the definition in the English is this, the act of converging. <laughs> that doesn't help. What does that mean? Well, it's moving towards union or uniformity. Everything is moving towards, towards a single point and towards a single focus. It, the second definition says to move towards one point or to approach each other, two, two separate entities that are coming together, converging together. One of the key phrases that, that will that'll help us understand where we are is not when we see isolated signs, but when we see the signs of Christ beginning to converge, beginning to multiply, beginning to come together, pointing to a single focus or a single point. In other words, convergence means to move towards an end goal with an ever-increasing intensity and speed. Jesus never used the word convergence. He did use the word birth pains, which is exactly what convergence is. The example he gave us is a woman in labor. Here's what he says. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed, no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. That's a sign. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's a sign. And so see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, yet the end is not happening yet. For a nation will rise against nation, a sign, and kingdom against kingdom, a sign. There will be famine, signs, pestilence, signs, earthquakes, signs in various places. And all these are the beginning, the New King James says, of sorrows. The word is Odin, the beginning of sorrows. But when you look at the Greek translation of the word Odin, it means travail as in birth pain. It means excruciating suffering and anguish as in birth pain. And it means afflictions. Now, back in Jesus' day, they did not have epidurals. 
You don't go to a hospital and they give you an epidural and then everything else from here down they're doing and you don't even feel it at all. Doesn't work that way. People died during childbirth. Um, it was a very dangerous, troubling, excruciatingly painful thing. They didn't have drugs to knock the pain off or anything of that nature. Instead, what they would do is they would do certain things to get their minds off that pain. It was terrible. For those of you who have given birth, you know what that's like, even though probably our facilities and the way we gave birth today is probably better and cleaner and not as painful as it was during that time. For you men who've never given birth before, understand that if we were the ones that were birthing children, no family would have more than one. True? You know, some woman has five kids, like my wife, strongest woman I ever met. You know, I was like, anyway. These are the beginning of anguish, the beginning of turmoil, the beginning of travail, of excruciating pain as of birth pains. And you know what that's like. Somebody's getting ready to give birth and, you know, they're really uncomfortable and they know the day is coming and a contraction start and they're 40 minutes apart and then they're 20 minutes apart and, and then they're 10 minutes apart. And as they start getting hard, you start in more rapid succession, 10 to 8 to 6 and all that kind of stuff. They're harder and they're harder and they're harder as the body begins to... Um, to prepare its body for, for birth, and then they last longer. And, and I know that I remember when Karen would give birth, the first couple of them, she would do this. Mm, that was rough. Towards the end, didn't help anymore. You know, and they would take us, <laughs> true, they're taking us to this Lamaze class because back then, you know, women gave birth and men sat and smoked cigars. You know, they wouldn't let you in the room together. But you go to this Lamaze class and they would teach the man to help the woman through the birth pains. And the job is to be, to be by her face and go, it's okay, let me help you breathe. And that works really well in the beginning. Towards the end, it's, get out of my face. You know? Yes? I remember, I remember when Karen was giving birth. We had some friends that were our age. And Karen went all natural and one of our friends... Uh, Linda Jones was her name, wanted to go on natural. She was talking about, you know, this is great. I want to experience everything, you know, just to be a, I am woman, hear me roar kind of thing. And, and she said that the first major contraction that hit, she grabbed the nurse and says, I want to talk drugs. I want to talk them now. <laughs> Convergence. They all start moving together to a point. And as they start moving together to this point, to this birth, to the second coming of Christ, there is pain and suffering, excruciating suffering that's ever increasing and it lasts even longer. These are the beginning, he says, of birth pains. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines are the beginning of that, meaning it's only going to get worse. So where are we right now in this birth pains. We're, what's going on? What has happened? What is happening? What comfort can we get knowing that, that there's this picture in Scripture of, of him coming and preparing the world for that? And again, I know you all want to know exactly where we are. We're going to find out next week because we have to cover some precursors. There's some events that have to take place prior to these end-time prophetic events, and you have got to 
be able to change your mind and your thinking about God's word regarding prophecy. The least read book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. And it is the only book that offers you a promise if you'll read it. Isn't that amazing? I get a special blessing if I read Revelation, and Revelation is the last book we ever read. Why? Well, it's too confusing. I don't really understand it. I mean, it's just a bunch of stuff, and I'm not really sure if all that stuff is real. We have a tendency of believing the things Jesus says about us and the good things, but we have a hard time believing some of the prophetic scriptures that he says because we don't really understand the Old Testament or we don't really understand his words, and is he speaking clearly to us about things that are going to happen in the future? Well, if he's not, if the, if the prophetic scriptures don't mean exactly what they say, what do they mean? I mean, is Jesus speaking in code? Does he not want you to understand what's going on? Is, is he trying to make his disciples misunderstand what he's saying? Is he somehow keeping it from us because we're too stupid or too uneducated or he doesn't really want us to know? Here's the sign of Jonah, and he walks away. Well, is he walking away because he doesn't want us to figure out what that means? Or is he walking away because I've already given you everything you need, now believe it and study it? And when it comes to prophetic scriptures, we love hearing about them, but we have a hard time believing them. Now listen very carefully. As confident as you are in John chapter 14, where Jesus said he's going to heaven to prepare a place for you, and if he's going to heaven to prepare a place for you into his father's house, he will come and return and receive you unto himself. As great comfort that you take in that verse, you're to take the same comfort in the prophetic verses that talk about trials and tribulations and sufferings and persecutions because they're all true. They're just as valid. He's letting us know about the times in which we live. Did, can we trust prophetic scriptures? Yes. And the reason why is because Jesus trusted them. The Old Testament scriptures. He, he believed everything they said about that. He affirmed certain things about the Old Testament scriptures that you and I would do well to affirm ourselves. Now, I'm going to go through this quickly. Um, I'll have this posted on the, uh, this slide posted by tomorrow, and you can look at these verses yourself. I don't want to belabor this. But these are some of the things that Jesus believed about scripture. And in him, for him, the scripture is the Old Testament. He believed that Scripture has divine authority. We see that in Matthew 4.4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, Jesus, what else do you believe about the Bible, including prophetic Scriptures? Well, I believe it's imperishable. I believe the Bible will never be destroyed. The Scriptures will endure forever. When did you say that? Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill because I'm telling you, not one jot, not one tittle will be destroyed until they all come to pass. Heaven and earth may pass away, but this word will never pass away. Jesus believed that the scripture is infallible, cannot be broken. And I've shared this with so many people who claim their errors in the Bible. To go to the library. Go to that huge section of books entitled Errors in the Bible and just choose one and bring it back to me and let's talk about it. Do you know how many books there are in the library like that? Do you know how many shelves there are? None. None. Stood the test of time. 
John 10, 34 through 36. If he calls them gods to whom the word God came, parentheses, and the scripture cannot be broken. It has to be fulfilled. Jesus believed it is inerrant. It is without error, and it is correct and true in everything that it teaches, and it teaches on everything. You want to know how to be a good husband? It's in the word. Good wife? In the word. Raise your kids? In the word. You want to know what kind of job you're supposed to have? You want to know what kind of profession you're supposed to have? Do you want to know how you're supposed to spend your money? Where you're supposed to live? How, what your feeling is about forgiveness or repentance or restitution? It's all in the word. You want to know who you're supposed to vote for? Or if you're even supposed to vote, it's all in the word. Everything about life is found in the word. John 17, 17 said, sanctify them by your word, because your word, your word, God, is truth. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is given by inspiration. All scripture, even prophetic scriptures. Number five, it is historically accurate. It's really amazing. Every time there's some new discovery, it's never the discovery that proves the Bible wrong. It's a discovery that proves the Bible right almost every single time. Well, science never fails. Really, 400 years ago, they were bleeding people with leeches. Do you remember? Jesus talked about Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the hearts of the earth. Why? Because Jonah was historically accurate. Later on in Matthew, but as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man, because Noah was historically accurate. Final, Scripture has ultimate supremacy. Ultimate. It is greater than man's traditions. It's greater than what we accept in our culture. It's greater than what you and I think or feel or want to believe. It is infallible and inerrant, and this is exactly how Jesus viewed Scripture including prophetic scripture. And if he views in that way, so should we. So where are we in prophetic history? And how are we to determine how we interpret prophetic history? I mean, is it all allegorical? Or is it all historical? Or is it all literal? Did Jesus really mean what he said? Or is he trying to confuse these farmers and fishermen into thinking something that it really didn't happen? I mean... Jesus interpreted the Bible literally, and almost every, and I have the word almost all in here because I haven't checked every single one of them, but every single one that I have checked in the Old Testament prophecies were all filled literally, literally, not metaphorically, literally, especially the resurgence of Israel. So, Here is something that they will teach you in seminary. This is hermeneutics 101, and if you'll remember this statement, it doesn't come from me. If you'll remember this statement, you don't have to take hermeneutics. If when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you end up with nonsense. Bible means what it says. And what it says makes sense. If I'm listening to what he's saying and he makes a statement and it makes sense that what he's saying, it would interpret it based on my conversation with him, then don't look for some strange, out of hand, behind the back door kind of interpretation or you'll end up with nonsense or end up in a cult. Bible means what it says and it says what it means. 
there are two elements that we need to look at as we begin to understand prophetic scripture. And they are the two groups of people God is concerned with. Make sure you understand, in the Old Testament, there were Jew and Gentile. There were Jews and Gentile. There were people under the covenant, and there are people that were lost. There are people who are loved by God, and there are people who are not. There are people who are chosen and not chosen. They're the people that God decided that he was going to communicate his will to the world through them and how to worship him and all that kind of And then there's those people that didn't really care. And then in our time now, you still have Jews and Gentile, but you had this other entity called the church, which is made up of Jews and Gentile. And so you From our vantage point right now, you've got, again, God dealing with the Jews and God dealing with the church. What is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of Israel? And how do the two of them fit together in harmony and biblical prophecy? We're going to look just very briefly at the first one today, the purpose of the church. Make sure you understand this. Purpose of the church was designed so that the kingdom of God would be delayed. Hasn't come yet. Hasn't come for 2,000 years. God had planned on establishing his kingdom with his people. He had brought them their Messiah. Their Messiah was brought up in front of an earthly king. The Jews themselves, the religious leaders, as representative of the people, looked and, and Pilate himself said, I find no fault in this man. This man is innocent of anything. And they said, we don't care. We want you to crucify him. So he takes this basin and he washes the blood off his hand and says, I will no longer have this man's blood on my hands. And the Jewish people at that time, the leaders at that time, who should have known different, said, let his blood be on us. Remember the rest of that phrase? And our children. As a matter of fact, that was so offensive to the Jewish community that when Mel Gibson put out the Passion of the Christ, they forced him to delete that phrase. What it says in Scripture, let his blood be on us and on our children. At that point in time, God said, that's it. We're closing the 69 weeks of the 70 weeks of Daniel have been completed. And now there's this delaying of the 70th week of Daniel, this delaying where God has chosen not to any longer deal with the world prophetically through Israel anymore, but instead created a, another entity that Paul says was a mystery to the people in the Old Testament, but is revealed to us as the church, where God no longer lives in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, but now lives in us. And because of that, he created the church. The church had a beginning and an end that is different than Israel's. And you and I are so blessed to be part of that. And now he's created this church and God moves through the church. And at some point in time, the church will serve its purpose and become apostate and the church will be gone. And then the time clock begins again for the 70th week of Daniel and God deals with the Jews. If you read the book of Revelation, it's not a Gentile book. It's a Jewish book. But because of that, the major focus of the church was Gentiles. And you and I have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and it's been so easy for us to do that as Gentiles because of God's grace in in postponing his kingdom. And Paul says, of course, one of the other reasons why we had the church was to make the Jews jealous. There's a heresy today 
very popular heresy. As a matter of fact, most of Christendom believes it, that the church in Israel are the same thing, that when Christ or the church was created, that Israel was set aside permanently, and we have now assumed all the promises of Israel, and none of that is true. That's an anti-Semitic Christian heresy, because the church and Israel had separate beginnings. They have separate purposes, and they each have a distinct end. And the next prophetic event on the calendar for the church, you know what it is? It is the rapture. It is the rapture. And our question is always, I know the rapture's coming, but how bad is it going to get before the rapture comes? And is it going to get worse than we are experiencing right now? That's the major question most of us have, and that's one we will deal with next week. So what happens to the church? In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, of course, we have the history of the church, and we see that through the various letters given, and we know we're living in the Laodicean church age, which is the last church age. But, but Jesus also, as a parallel to that, gave us these kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13. And this is spectacular. It's unbelievable. Because you need to understand, as a person that's going to pinpoint their life on this continuum of prophetic history, what the church is like now. And he lays it out for us in the parable of the, of the um, kingdom parables where he talks about the postponement of the kingdom. Remember the first parable? Parable of the sower. Man went out to sow. He's got the seeds, and he knows the word of God, the gospel message, and he sows them on these various uh, areas. He just spreads them out. Some land on the path, some land on shallow soil, some land on thorny soil with weeds, and some land over here on fertile soil. And then all of a sudden, there's growth that takes place, but only one of those actually produces fruit. Christ created the church. He gave us a command to preach his message to everyone. And the church, by and large, in times past, has been fairly successful at that. We don't do it near as much today because we've decided to, to form our little conclaves here and keep our gospel message just to ourselves and the reality is that the world's not going to let us do that much any longer. They're going to take the battle to us. But of all the people that make professions, you have the hard path people who say, I'm not interested at all. You have two-thirds of those that actually make professions are not saved. True salvation takes place only with fruit producing, and you have one that, that flourishes for a while, but persecution and trials and tribulation like the sun and the heat burn it out. Or the other one who produces fruit, but the deceitfulness of wealth or the worries of life choke it out and again makes it unfruitful. But the church itself becomes so lukewarm that it accepts all three of those based on their profession. But according to this parable, only one-third are truly saved, and the other two thirds, work really hard to bring the fervency and the fire of the church down to an area where they feel comfortable. That's one of the courses of the church, how it starts out. And then as the church begins to grow, Satan decides the best way to attack the church is to go in and spread discord and spread false teaching and spread your best life now and spread all these 
strange stuff within the church and the congregations who don't really study their Bible, they're not really discerning, they're not like Bereans, they don't really care, just take whatever somebody else says and it's satisfactory to them. I was looking at a church service today from a United Methodist Church and they were basically talking about the election. You know, and they didn't come out and say, you need to vote for Biden, but the message sure seen that way, a social justice kind of message. Because, no, and, and, you know, I'm looking at all these people there, they don't even care. Well, you know, we're just going to do it that way, and that's just the way it is. And when I, um, when I went to Pasco, Washington, the pastor never pastored a bunch of people who belonged to unions. I just never lived in that kind of area. And out there, there was a lot of big factories and a, in a Hanford uh, nuclear site, and everybody seemed like they belonged to a union. And they were all pro-Clinton. Just Clinton this and Clinton that. I couldn't understand why. Why would you vote for a political candidate who represents a party who is for this, the murder of innocent babies? How can you justify that? Well, because we always vote as a union, Democratic, because the Democratic Party is the party of the unions, and money comes first. So we have this assault that takes place where false teaching, usually a lot of the teaching you hear on television, evangelists and stuff of that nature, uh, is always mingled in with some false teaching that gratifies the flesh, the wheat and the tares. Jesus says, I'm going to let them grow together. I'm not even going to address the issue now, but there'll be a day of judgment where I'll separate those things. Then the parable of the mustard seed. Church is like a kingdom of heaven. is like a mustard seed. It plants in the ground, it grows into this mighty tree so great that even the birds of the air make their nest in its branches. Do you remember that? Birds of the air biblically speaks of Satan. You find that back in the book of Genesis. And so the church now becomes this monstrosity. The church doesn't become a, a called out assembly. It becomes an institution that is so great that Satan can even make its nest or its home and the branches of the church, and the church isn't even bothered with that. Where does the church go from there, Lord? This parable of leaven, a little leaven. Leaven represents sin. A little leaven leavens the whole loaf. So we have a church who's preaching the gospel, yet accepting two-thirds of its people is lost. And so therefore you've got false teaching that is in the church and it's flourishing, being sold as true teaching, yet there's no, there's no fruit for that and God will separate that as a judgment. And, and the church now, based on this false teaching, grows to be nothing more than a self-affirmation center where Christ is not exalted because this, this sinister sin has been put into the loaf so much that it has leavened the entire loaf. This is the course of the church. And the parables that I just read you are ones that happened prior to the rapture. The ones after the rapture, the treasure hidden in the parable of the hidden treasure has to do with Israel. Pearl of great price has to do with the Gentile nations. And then, of course, the parable of the dragnet has to do with judgment, where God drags them all up and then separates those. And at the very end of this chapter, Jesus says, have you understood all these things? And the disciples say, yes, Lord. I don't understand them, do you? They didn't either. I mean, what were they thinking? What would you have said? 
and yet he leaves it right there. Now I want you to watch this. This, these are scriptures that deal with the church at the last days, the church in which we live, the, the people that call themselves Christians. Choose one. Now, Jude and 2 Peter 2, 1 through 22 are about the same. And so don't choose those two because they're really long and they kind of duplicate each other, but choose one. Scott, pick one. Turn to it, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Let me read this to you. But know this. By the way, Timothy is writing to Christians. He's writing to a church. Writing to, or Paul's writing to a pastor. But know this. In the last days, perilous times will come. Well, how bad will they be? Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers. That's Facebook, by the way. Without self-control, brutal. That's Twitter. Despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. So what are we to do? And from such people, turn away. He's talking about lost people who have made their home in the church. Made their home in the church. When you go online or you look at Fox News or some other news station and you want to know how the church feels about something, it's never a solid believer in Christ you have up there. It's Joel Osteen or somebody who's really popular that that doesn't even speak for Christ. When you go to the bookstore and all the books that are written, the, the, Christian, the Christian booksellers, they want to sell books. They don't really care if the books are doctrinally true. They just want to sell books and sell music. And we just bring it all in, non-discerning, not realizing the times in which we live. Mo, choose one. Yeah, Second Peter 3, right? 3 through 6. The other one will take too long to read. It's like reading the book of Jude. Second Peter 3. Let me begin in verse 1. Beloved, now I write to you this second epistle, and both which I may stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And here's what he says. Knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the word that existed perished, being flooded by water. Let me go ahead and read. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. 
There are scoffers in the church. Oh, you're too spiritual. Oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, don't spend all your time reading the Bible because we're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Look at your, look at your checkbook. Look at the time that you spend. See how much money and time you spend on pleasure versus on God. Shocking. It's the condition of the church. To sum it up, here's what it looks like. Church in the last days has a denial of God. They deny Christ. They deny that Christ is actually coming because that means there'll be a judgment. There's a denial of faith, of sound doctrine, of a separated holy life. There's a denial of Christian liberty, of morals, and especially a denial of authority. As we begin to look at where we are in the last times, you need to realize that we are, especially in the West, we are living among those who profess Christ, who have almost given up all vestiges of Christianity. We don't teach our kids about the Bible. Instead, we want them to be really good playing video games. We don't matter where we send our kids to school. doesn't matter whether we have devotions with them at night. We don't teach our kids to pray. We don't teach them to worship. We don't really care who they hang around with because we're too busy living our own lives, making our own money, doing the things that we want to do. And if we act too spiritual and get too committed to stuff like that, then the rest of the church, the two-thirds who have growth and no fruit, will beat it out of us. So when it talks about being light and darkness especially prophetically, a lot of that light will be shined even in the church. Two quotes and I'll quit. Dwight Pentecost, great Bible teacher. Here's what he says. The condition at the close of the age is seen to coincide with the state within the Laodicean church, before which Christ must stand to give admission. Remember, I stand at the door and knock. In view of its close... It is not surprising that the age is called an evil age that we're living in in Scripture. Louis Schaeffer, who died in 1952, he was the pastor who founded Dallas Theological Seminary. I'll give you an idea of who he was. Louis Schaeffer says this, A very extensive body of Scripture bears on the last days of the church. Reference is to a restricted time at the very end of, yet wholly within the present age that we exist right now. Through this brief period immediately precedes the great tribulation and in some measure is a preparation for it. The two times of apostasy and confusion throw in, incomparable in history are wholly separate from one, one from the other. The apostasy of the church, the falling away, is a precursor to the end times. Those scriptures which set forth the last days for the church give no consideration to political or world conditions, but are confined to the church itself. These scriptures picture man as departing from the faith. There will be a manifestation of characteristics which belong to unregenerate men, though it is under the profession of a form of godliness. The indication is that having denied the power of the blood of Christ, the leaders in these forms of righteousness will be unregenerate men from whom nothing more spiritual than this could proceed. Let me sum that up for you. It says, in essence, the bulk of the church leaders in the last days, that doesn't necessarily mean pastors. It also means fathers and husbands and wives, will be unregenerate men. 
They will be lost. They will be those that gave a profession of Christ and had some sort of emotional growth, but have failed him immensely. Men who exhibit a form of godliness but have no power of Christ within them, which is the definition of the Laodicean church age. I'm so concerned about me and my problems and the things that I need to do and the things that I want to do and live in my gusto and I've got to make money doing this. And I know, God, that I'm asking you to bless what I want to do, but I'm not willing to commit my life to you. I'm angry with my wife and I'm, I don't spend any time with my kids and I'm just as, as callous and as coarse and as unloving as everybody else, but not quite as bad because I'm a Christian. I have no sense of propriety, no morals, nothing that I'm willing to stand for and act like a man. And hence the church is in a situation that it's in, and you and I have grown up in that church and become comfortable in the church because after all, it doesn't really matter what we do. There's some congregation out there that will accept us, accept us just so we can sit in a seat and pay for the ticket. Know what I mean? So what do we do? Listen very carefully. I've been sharing this with you for months. It's time to become a faith prepper, which means we recognize the importance of the latter, the prepping, but we focus on the eternal first, the faith. To have that kind of faith that perseveres. To have that kind of faith that if you lose your job because you go to church, I'm willing to lose my job. Most of us in church would say, absolutely, we're going to obey God rather than man until you're faced with it, and then we capitulate. Because we capitulate to so much less stuff than that. All the time. We capitulate to leading moral and pure lives. We capitulate to loving others more than ourselves. We capitulate to, to anything that denies me of my pleasure because I'm a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. And that kind of faith will not get us through dark times. Understand this. There will be a great apostasy that takes place. Men will walk away from the truth because they love their husband and wives and kids and lifestyle and money and every, all the other trappings that they have, respectability in the community, knowing it's wrong, but they're going to do it anyway because of what we've always done. And the, the alternative is horrific. I may lose my house. I may be homeless. I may, I may not have friends anymore. What am I to do? Those are the people that will turn on true Christians. Those are the people that will, their love will grow cold and they will betray each other. And you will find as days get darker, history has showed us this, it is the bulk of the professing church. Maybe you. Maybe me. But now's the time to find out. And now's the time to change. And now's the time to take it absolutely seriously, more than the church has made you feel that you should. We are to be light in darkness. Well, how much so? Christ says God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. At all. It's coming. It's almost here. Part of me is not looking forward to it because, you know, who wants to go through tough times, right? Part of me is exhilarated 
Because yes, Lord, I get to live in a time when the people that I truly fellowship with, I'll know are absolutely committed to you because there's some price that has to be paid for that. Do you feel the same way? Then make a commitment. Be that kind of person. To have a big God rather than a little God and not give in to the same ploys that Satan hits us with every single time. Amen? Let me pray.